You are now listening to the July 18th broadcast of Unity in Christ. This hour, we have Story of Kings, Sermon, and Praying for the Next Generation. First, let's begin with Story of Kings. Hello, Heart and Soul listeners. This is Brian Winston from Story of Kings. Today we'll look into the word from 2 Samuel chapter 19 through 24 and 1 Chronicles chapters 21, 22, 28, and 29. After the defeat and death of Absalom, the surviving troops that came to support Absalom from the different parts of Israel returned to their respective hometowns. They were most likely dejected and discouraged at the short-lived rebellion and might have wondered how it all went down. In the meantime, David prepared to return to Jerusalem. While David was making preparations, the Israelites that had sided with Absalom in his unsuccessful coup gathered their tribes and discussed what should be their disposition towards David. In particular, the tribe of Judah that had provided the power base in Absalom's rebellion was fearful of David's retribution, so they were hesitant to partake in the initiative to bring David back to Jerusalem. David found out about this and he sent a messenger to the priests Zadok and Abiatar to pose the question to the people as to why they were delaying in bringing the king back to the palace. David was basically saying that he was ready to let bygones be bygones. As a sign of reconciliation, especially for the people of Judah, David said he would promote Amasa, who was Absalom's leading general during the rebellion, to be the commander of his army in place of Joab. With that, the people of Judah understood that David was ready to put the past behind and move on. They then agreed to receive David and hurried to make preparations for his return. Finally, David and his entourage were making their way back to Jerusalem. When David arrived at the Jordan River, an unexpected visitor appeared. That was the same person that hurled insults at David when he was leaving Jerusalem. Yes, Shimei appeared before him. Back then, Shimei cursed David and threw stones at him. Now, David was returning to be restored to his kingship. So Shimei came before David, asking for mercy. He was worried about what he did and how he might have to pay for it with his life. Shimei brought a thousand men from the tribe of Benjamin, and they bowed before the king and promised allegiance. Shimei pleaded with David to not remember the wrong he had committed in the past. One of David's generals, Abishai, was angry at Shimei and how he suddenly changed his story. Abishai would have gladly put Shimei to the sword for his insolent behaviors the last time they met. However, David was much more conciliatory. David said, How could he put someone to death on this joyous occasion when he was returning to Jerusalem? David forgave and embraced Shimei. This move showed how wise David was as a king. David knew Shimei was an influential man from the tribe of Benjamin who had supported King Saul. David was focused more on uniting the country rather than exacting payback for personal insults. Once David sorted out the situation involving Shimei, there were other issues that required his attention. For one, there was the situation involving Jonathan's son, Mephibethesh, and his caretaker, Ziba. You may recall how Ziba came before David when he was leaving Jerusalem and convinced David to give all the wealth that had belonged to Mephibethesh over to him by telling David that Mephibethesh was staying behind in Jerusalem thinking he would be restored to the kingship that had belonged to his grandfather Saul. The fact of the matter was, Mephibethesh wanted to join David from the day David left Jerusalem. It was just that he was crippled 
It did not want to be a burden to David. It was Ziba, the servant, that betrayed his master and slandered him to David. Therefore, Mephibosheth was in deep despair. He had not trimmed his beard or washed himself. Now, David found out the truth about Mephibosheth's situation, and yes, he should have punished Ziba. However, again, he didn't punish Ziba. Perhaps he wanted to keep the day in celebration to commemorate his return to Jerusalem. In his ruling, David compromised and told Mephibosheth and Ziba to equally divide their wealth. We might note that Ziba the servant was also from the tribe of Benjamin. The case involving Shimei and Ziba were delicate and required a careful maneuvering on David's part, and both of them feared retribution from David. However, there was another case that came up, but unlike the previous cases, this one was a welcoming sign for David. Someone came to see David to truly celebrate his return. He was Barzillai from Gilead, who had provided food for David and his men while they were on the run. When David saw Barzillai, he was happy to see his friendly face. David greeted him and asked him to live closer to him in Jerusalem. However, Barzillai said he was old and would rather send his son instead to live in Jerusalem and serve David. Of course, David granted that wish. After meeting those three people and reaching reconciliations, David safely crossed the Jordan River. Then, with all the troops of Judah and half of the troops of Israel, David went to Gilgal. However, seeing how the tribe of Judah was so involved in their king's return, the rest of the Israelites began to grumble. They complained the tribe of Judah helped David cross the Jordan River without them having any say in it. As the complaining continued, Sheba from the tribe of Benjamin blew the trumpet and said, We have no portion in David, nor do we have inheritance in the son of Jesse. Every man to his tents, O Israel. This was the first part of 2 Samuel chapter 20, verse 1. Surprisingly, the Israelites left David and followed Sheba. Only the people of Judah followed David from the Jordan River to Jerusalem. When David returned to Jerusalem, as promised to the tribe of Judah, he promoted Amasa as commander of the army. To suppress Sheba's revolt that happened while he was returning to Jerusalem, he ordered for the people of Judah to gather in three days. However, it was taking longer than expected to bring together the people of Judah. Sensing urgency to bring Sheba under control, David ordered Abishai to take the king's soldiers and pursue Sheba. Later, Joab and his men would also pursue Sheba. When Joab arrived in Gibeon, he happened to meet Amasa. Joab had been angry that Amasa supported Absalom's rebellion, and even so, he took his place as commander of the army. Joab acted out his discontent and murdered the unsuspecting Amasa. After the killing, Joab turned his attention to Sheba. He found out where he was. Sheba went all around Israel and eventually settled in Abel Beth Makah. Joab and his men completely besieged the city of Abel Beth Makah and were wreaking havoc in their effort to topple the wall. However, a wise woman in the city raised her voice from the top of the city wall and said she wanted to talk to Joab. She asked Joab, why is he trying to destroy this city, which was their inheritance from God? Joab said he didn't want to destroy this city. Joab went on to explain how Sheba had caused a revolt against David. If he could get Sheba, he would leave the city alone. The wise woman then explained to the people of the city and pointed out Sheba as the culprit. They listened to the woman and threw the head of Sheba over the wall as Joab dictated. The interventions of this wise woman helped the people of the city to save their city and avoid destruction that would have come from a battle. As promised, 
Joab withdrew his forces and brought the head of Sheba back to Jerusalem. He became commander of the army once again. Absalom's rebellion and Sheba's revolt were suppressed, but hardships did not end there for David. Later, David faced a severe famine. Three successive years of famine came upon Israel. When David prayed to God to take away the famine, God explained to him the reason behind the famine. According to 2 Samuel chapter 21, verse 1, And the Lord said, It is for Saul and his bloody house, because he put the Gibeonites to death. Saul mistreated the Gibeonites and unjustly tried to eradicate them, even though the Israelites had taken an oath to spare the Gibeonites. David called in the Gibeonites and asked them what he could do for them. The Gibeonites said, They wanted seven of Saul's descendants to be given to them so that they could hang them on a tree in Gibeah where Saul lived. Among Saul's descendants, David spared Jonathan's son, Mephibosheth. David gave the sons born from Saul's daughters and sons born from other concubines to the Gibeonites. Then God stopped the famine and looked after Israel. Another hardship struck Israel, and this time, It was induced by David himself. Instead of putting his trust in God, he wanted to see how many fighting men he had in his country. He carried out a census of Israel, and that did not please God. 2 Samuel chapter 24, verse 1 says, The anger of the Lord burned against Israel. After Joab went around Israel to carry out the census, he reported the number of men who drew the sword. There were 800,000 from Israel, 500,000 from Judah, and a total of 1.3 million men. David saw his mistake and was guilt-stricken. He realized that carrying out a census was wrong and confessed his sin to God. The next day God sent Gad, the seer, to David and told him to choose one out of three options as a punishment for his sin. The options God presented to David would all lead to severe hardships. The three options were seven years of famine, three months of running from his enemies, and three days of pestilence in Israel. Among these, David chose the option that would involve God's hand, the pestilence. According to 2 Samuel chapter 24, verse 14, David said, I am in deep distress. Let us fall into the hands of the Lord, for his mercy is great. But do not let me fall into the hands of men. From that day, there was great pestilence in Israel. Seventy thousand people died from Dan to Beersheba. When the striking angel, carrying out the task of inflicting pestilence, reached Jerusalem, God was grieved over the affliction the pestilence was causing his people and halted the angel from continuing. David pleaded with God, I am the one who has sinned. What wrong have the people done? Please let your hand be against me and my household. Then Gad the seer ran to David and told him God's word to build an altar on the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. That threshing floor marked the place where God told the angel to halt the striking. David immediately built an altar and gave burnt offerings and peace offerings. God accepted David's prayer and stopped the disaster of pestilence on Israel. In the future, the threshing floor was to become the exact location where Solomon's temple would be built. From that day on, David made preparations for building the temple. He prepared stone cutters, cedar, brass, iron, nails, and funds required to build the temple. He also prepared a design of the temple, which was shown to him during a prayer so Solomon would be able to build the temple properly. David commanded all the leaders of Israel to help his son Solomon build a temple for the name of the Lord. As David looked back on his life, we can only wonder what must have gone through his mind, all the ups and downs, 
all the right things he did and the wrongs he committed. One thing remains certain, that he must have longed to be with the Lord without worrying about the ups and downs life brings. I'll see you next time from the Story of Kings. Goodbye. Coming up next is a sermon by Pastor Mark Martin of Calvary PHX in Phoenix, Arizona. Today's topic is Jesus' Promise to Return. 
I hope you have a blessed time with Pastor Mark. Well, I want to ask you a quick question, and that is, what kind of things are you anticipating? Let's talk about good things. What kind of things do you anticipate? I'm for some of us, you anticipate your birthday. You look forward to that. For others, it might be I'm anticipating Christmas. You look forward to that. For some of you, it's I'm anticipating getting married. That's cool. Or having kids. Or for some, retiring. I don't know. But there are some great things that we look forward to. The New Testament church, though, had one thing that they were looking forward to. And that was they lived in the anticipation of the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. And healthy Christians and healthy churches today are going to live in that same anticipation. You know, the Holy Spirit talks about the return of the Lord Jesus Christ uh, 300 times in the New Testament. Obviously, there is an emphasis there because the Lord wants us as believers to live in that same kind of anticipation, Jesus spoke about that in John chapter 14, verses 1, 2, and 3. So take your Bibles, okay, and look at your Bible with me, and let's see John chapter 14, and we're going to look at verses 1, 2, and 3. Now, Jesus is speaking encouragement to his disciples because they're, they're fearful. Jesus has said he was going to leave them. He said that he was going to be betrayed. He said he was going to die. He said they were going to be scattered. And so his comforting words are these. Look, I want you to anticipate something. And he says in John chapter 14, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. For in my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, listen, I will come again. Say that with me. I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, there you may be also. Isn't that awesome? Jesus promised to come back and to take you and me to be with him. That is his personal promise to us. Now, Jesus' return is going to be real and it's going to be physical. In Acts chapter one, let's look at Acts chapter one. It's just next door to the right. So just go next door, Acts chapter one, and let's look at verse nine. Acts chapter one at verse 9, it says, and when Jesus had said these things, as his disciples were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. So this glory cloud took Jesus up into heaven and went so high the disciples watched until they couldn't see him anymore. And while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and they said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? Listen, this Jesus who is taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. So what is this saying? This is saying that Jesus who went real literally into heaven in a cloud is going to come back really literally the same way that he went up. He's gonna come back in clouds of glory. Jesus is coming back soon. That's what the New Testament teaches as well. Now, no one knows the date that Jesus is going to return. People often ask, is there any way that we can know when Jesus is going to return? The answer is no. Nobody can know the date. Now, why do we know that? Well, it's because of what Jesus said in Matthew 24, verse 36. Go to Matthew 24. We're going to look at a few scriptures from there. Matthew chapter 24, verse 36. Jesus said, but concerning that day, that is the day of his return and the hour, who knows? But concerning that day and hour, who knows? It says what? No one knows, not even the angels of heaven, 
nor the Son, but the Father only. Who knows? Only the Father knows when Jesus is going to return. You want to be very careful that you're not getting pulled into people who are setting dates. I mean, I see that. It happens, and it kind of rolls through the church. You know, you get people who write books and make a whole lot of money on writing books where they, they set dates or they, you know, they infer times when the Lord is going to return. Despite the fact that Jesus said nobody knows the day and hour of his return, still dates are being set. Now, I remember years ago, there was a guy who wrote a book, and it was in 1988, and he said, of course, I was just learning to read in 1988. He, in 1988, wrote a book called 88 Reasons Why Jesus is Going to Come in 1988. Well, obviously, Jesus didn't return in 1988. So the next year, believe it or not, he wrote a book in 1989, he wrote a book 89 reasons why Jesus is going to return in 1989. Now, of course, we understand Jesus didn't return and Jesus said not to set dates. I mean, you had like 150 years ago, you had groups in the 1800s that were setting dates. One group uh, set a date, an exact date, October 22nd, 1844. Jesus was going to return. Jesus didn't return them because Obviously, the Bible says no one knows. Not the angels, not the son, only the father in heaven. But Jesus is very clear about this too. Though he refused to give a date, no date, he's saying, I want you to live daily like I'm going to return. Just be ready. That would be Jesus' message. Just be ready. Jesus says for us to live expecting his return at any moment. In Matthew chapter 24, since we're right here in the area, Matthew chapter 24, look at verse 42. Matthew chapter 24, verse 42. Jesus says, therefore, stay awake, stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. Stay awake. In other words, you don't know the day, but, but stay awake. Be ready. Be ready at any time. In Matthew chapter 25, verse 13, just a few verses later, he says, watch therefore, verse 13, watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. He says, wake up, stay alert, watch, because it could happen at any moment. I'm just going to read this for you in, in Mark chapter 13, verse 33, Jesus says, be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. Luke says, you also must be ready all the time, for the Son of Man will come when least expected. And the Bible closes in the book of Revelation, chapter 22, last chapter of the last book of the Bible, Jesus says three times, I am coming soon. I am coming soon. So the church is to live in the expectation, the anticipation of the Lord's return. We don't know the date, okay? We've established that. We don't know the date when Jesus is going to return, for sure. But we can know what the days will be like before Jesus returns. The Bible says that the days are going to be specifically like the days of Noah before the flood. Look at Matthew chapter 24. Look at verse 37. Jesus says, for as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the son of man. So how were the days of Noah? It says, in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage. That just means everything was going on. They weren't, you know, like we don't, we're clueless until the day when Noah entered the ark. So everybody, everything was going on. Nobody was looking for the Lord's return. You know, the world was just, like I said, they were clueless until Noah entered the ark. Though Noah had been preaching, judgment is coming. Nobody listened until the door of the ark was closed and it was too late and the great flood. And it says in verse 39, and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the son of man. 
In other words, most people are not going to be aware. They're not paying attention. They're not looking for the Lord's return. Nobody knows the exact date of his return, but you sure can know what the days are going to be like. The days of Noah were filled with violence. They were filled with, uh, with uh, sexual promiscuity, with wickedness, corruption, murders, kind of self-made religion. The days of Noah sound a lot like our days today. The Lord may come at any moment. No one expected the flood to come. And most people today don't expect the Lord to return either. The Bible teaches us that when Jesus comes, it's going to be sudden, it's going to be unexpected, and it's going to be like the lightning. You know, it's just going to be fast. It's going to happen as a thief in the night. You see, this great anticipation of Jesus' return is spoken of throughout the New Testament. New Testament Christians, they believe that Jesus would return in their lifetimes. I mean, in Philippians chapter 3, verse 20, Philippians chapter 3, verse 20, let me read this for you, Philippians chapter 3, verse 20. Paul writes to these Christians in the city of Philippi, Philippians 3, verse 20, he says, for our citizenship is in heaven from which we also, listen, we also eagerly wait for a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, the church was eagerly waiting. They were anticipating the Lord's return. They were being ready, like Jesus said. And the apostle James writes this in James chapter five. He says, you too be patient, strengthen your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. You be patient, he said, strengthen your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. James 5, 8, 9. The judge is standing at the door. The New Testament church lived in the anticipation, the expectation of Jesus' return at any moment. We have Jesus' personal promise that he's coming back for us. We know that Jesus is coming back literally, really. He's coming back physically for his church, and he's coming back soon. And we're to live being ready for his return. And we understand, like, though we don't know the date of his return, we know exactly what the days will be like. And the Bible says that this anticipation, this expectation of the Lord's return is the blessed hope of the church. It's called the blessed hope of the church. This is our hope. As Christians can share the hope. Hey, world, you don't look like there's any hope. And, and I'm telling you, in this world, in the world, there's no hope. Our only hope is found in Jesus Christ. And in him, we look forward to the fact that this is not all there is. We look forward to a new world, right? A new heaven, a new earth. We're looking forward to a world where there is no more pain. There's no more sickness. There's no more death. There's no more crime. There's no more separation. Amen? That's what we're looking for. And Jesus has promised that he is returning for us to deliver us from this world. Now, expecting the Lord's return does something to us. And I want you now to note these things. I mean, I want you to know the returning of Jesus Christ, knowing and understanding, waiting for Jesus' return, does some things for us. First of all, it changes us. You knowing that Jesus is returning changes you. I want you to look in the Bible. Go back just uh, before the book of Revelation, I want you to look at the book of First John. You know, uh, the apostle John wrote the Gospel of John, and then he wrote First, Second, and Third John. They're, they're kind of letters. Third John's like a postcard, and then he wrote the Revelation of Jesus Christ. So John writes prolifically, but this is First John, just before the book of Revelation. You'll find it, First John, and look at chapter three, First John chapter three, and um, let's look at verse one. First John chapter three, verse one. 
See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God, and so we are. Can I just pause there? I mean, it's not on topic exactly. You know, I'm a teacher. I can't leave saying something about verse one. He says, behold, see what kind of love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called the children of God, and such we are. This is unbelievable. What kind of love is this that God would choose us and love us and promise that he would never, ever, no matter what we do, stop loving us. What kind of love is that? It says, behold, what manner of love? Literally, it says, it could be translated, behold, what alien kind of love this is. It's not of this world. I mean, this is out of this world. You could say it's something like, behold, what out of this world kind of love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called children of God. And such we are. Now, go on. He says, the reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, verse two, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. We don't know exactly what it's gonna be, you know, when we're in heaven, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. So here's another insight to when the Lord returns. We're gonna be like him. We're gonna see him as he is. Now, verse three is really one to emphasize here. And everyone who has this hope in him. In other words, everybody who has this hope, anticipation in the Lord's return, purifies himself as he is pure. You see, having this hope of the Lord's return, it changes us. It purifies us. I mean, if you believe that Jesus is coming any moment, hey, you better be ready. I mean, I don't want to be caught when Jesus returned in some kind of sin. I want to be careful to live a godly life. Reading my New Testament, see the guidelines for how a believer lives. And the second thing it does is having this anticipation, it challenges us. It challenges you. It challenges me. In James chapter 5, again, the apostle James said, you too must be patient Take courage, for the coming of the Lord is near. Now, it challenges us how to live. Listen, he says, don't grumble about each other, brothers and sisters, or you will be judged. For look, the judge is standing at the door. Now, I just want to say this. As we go forward in these very uncertain times, when, when I don't know what the course exactly looks like for the church, I mean, the body of Christ, we know the church is marching forward. Nobody can stop the church. But I mean, like the local church, what's church going to look like, guys? I mean, we talk about social distancing. Well, what's that going to look like in a church? I mean, how many people can you get in a service? I mean, there's all these kind of things. I don't know what it's going to be look like. But if let's say there's only so many chairs, you know, and you're not sitting right next to somebody, it's going to show our Christian love and our Christian maturity. Because you might come in and there's no place for you to sit. Or you might think, well, why are they sitting there? They're taking up more space than they should. I'm telling you, I'm looking ahead and I'm thinking, people of God, church, We're going to be tested. Our love for one another, our patience, our godliness, it's going to be tested. And we're going to see who's walking with the Lord and who isn't walking in the spirit. That's what we're going to see. So he says, look, take courage. The coming of the Lord is near. Don't grumble about each other, brothers and sisters, or you will be judged. He says, for look, the judge is standing at the door. And looking for the Lord's return, it challenges me to keep life in perspective. All this stuff, it's happening. These things are, some of them are frightening. I mean, they're, they're upsetting us. New normal. I don't like new normal, do you? I don't like plexiglass in front of me. I don't, I'm a hugger, you know? I'm a handshaker. And, and to have to, to do that from... Six feet is annoying, you know, but new normal, new normal. But all of this challenges me and it challenges you to keep life in perspective. This is not all there is. Jesus is coming back soon. And we're not getting into this right now, but the signs of the times, there's so many more things that are signs of the times, even more specific than the days of Noah. 
that make me believe with all my heart that Jesus is coming back very, very soon for his people. And believing and anticipating that the Lord is returning, also it motivates us. It motivates us. You see, there's work to be done, gang. In Matthew chapter 9, verse 37, Jesus said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful. The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. He goes on to say, therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers in the harvest. Gang, right now, the harvest is ripe. People are ready to hear about Jesus Christ. People are ready to hear about Jesus Christ. I'm going to tell you what, what we ended up doing on Easter. Okay, I didn't say anything at, at Easter. I want to tell you what we ended up doing. People were coming to us. Our neighbors were coming to us. And they said, can we please have an Easter service? And I'm going to Easter. Oh, I don't know. An Easter service? For some reason, doing an Easter service with my neighbors freaked me out more than speaking to thousands of people. And I was like, oh, I don't know. But we had this one neighbor that she was just persistent please, please, please. And, and Leslie started, you know, chiming in. Yeah. And, and some more neighbors were saying, let's. So at eight o'clock, uh, we had this huge cross. Some of you saw, you know, I put it on my Facebook. We had this huge 11 foot high cross with the, the white draping on it on Easter morning. And it, it was standing in our yard. And we had like 20 neighbors gathering around and we had an Easter service and I shared the gospel it was an amazing time. People are open. They're looking for hope. They're more open than ever before. So pray the Lord of harvest. God needs you. There's work to be done. You know, you remember Jesus says, go there and make disciples of all the nations and baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. Hey, now you open up your home and you make disciples. You teach people. You teach Christians who know less than you. You use the Bible studies that, that we're sharing with you. You use the messages to talk and discuss. I mean, that's one way to do this great commission. First Peter 3 verse 15 says, if someone asks you about your Christian hope, Always be ready to explain it. If somebody asks you, why are you so hopeful? Hey, take advantage. Don't be ashamed. What's the worst thing anybody could do is they could say, eh, and walk away. So what? So what? You did what Jesus wants you to do. You did Jesus. But you know, so many people, they're looking for hope and they're listening right now. People need to know that Jesus is the only way of salvation. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And nobody comes to the Father except by him. You say, well, I'm scared. Yeah, but that's why the Holy Spirit was given to us in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Before he ascended into heaven, Jesus said, but you shall receive power. He said, I want you to go and I want you to be my witnesses, he told the disciples, in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. That's us. And then he says, and I will give you power. The Holy Spirit will come upon me and you will be my witnesses. You see, we have power. I read uh, that there was a large grandfather clock in a room. It's actually in in a grandpa's living room. And the a little kid was there, his grandson was there. And, um, you know, the clock always, you know, strikes the hours, you know. And so it was noon and the clock, there was 12 chimes. And then it went one more, 13, 14, 15. And the little guy ran to his grandpa. He says, grandpa, grandpa, it's later than it's ever been before. And you know what? That's true today, gang. It's later than it's ever been before. Jesus is returning. Time is short. It's later than it's ever been before. The return of Jesus Christ has never been closer than it is today. But I know, I, I know 
that some are thinking, yeah, but you've been saying that Jesus is returning for years and he's not here yet. What kind of a track record is that? I'm not sure he's coming anytime soon. And I understand that, and I think that's a fair statement. It's a good point. Though, I suppose lots of people were saying that the same thing about the prophecies of Jesus uh, coming into the world. Ah, those prophecies have been prophesied for 700 years, for 300 years. Ah, you've been saying that forever. Yeah, but it was fulfilled. Jesus did come to this earth. The Bible doesn't shy away from answering this question. And as believers, we have an answer to the question. We don't have to say, oh, well, yeah, you're right. No, there is a reason why Jesus hasn't returned yet. And I want you to see that reason in the book of 2 Peter. So I want you to go to 2 Peter, and that's going to be to the left from where you were in 1 John. Look at 2 Peter chapter 3, and look at verse 3. Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where's the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, ever since the, those who predicted Jesus' return died, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. The Bible says there will be people who scoff when we say Jesus is returning soon. Ah, everything's coming. You guys have been saying that for 2,000 years. But then it goes on to say, at verse 8, but do not overlook this fact, this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is one day. In other words, realize this. God is out of time. God's not late. And for the Lord who lives in eternity, <laughs> this is no time right now. What? He says, just be ready. Now, why has the Lord delayed? You say, yeah, he hasn't come. You guys, listen, why has the Lord not returned? Verse nine, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Why hasn't Jesus returned? The Bible says, because he's waiting for you. He's waiting for you. You shouldn't scoff that he hasn't returned. His answer is, you know why I haven't returned? I'm waiting for you. That's an amazing thing to think about. That means he's saying, I'm waiting for you to come to repentance. God is calling you to repentance right now. Jesus is returning. The answer to your question, why has he not returned yet? Is I ought to be thankful <laughs> because he's waiting for you to come to repentance. Repenting means to turn from your sin, to say, God, you're right, I'm wrong. You turn from where you're going and you turn to God and you say, God, I'm gonna go your way. I'm sorry for my sins. I want eternal life. You see, after Jesus returns, it's too late. You've gotta be ready. And readiness is found by having a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And I want you to have that. And I want you to know right now that there are thousands and thousands of people praying for you this very moment. People all over the place, people all over the world are praying for you right now and you sense their prayers. And I'm gonna pray right now for you and then I'm gonna ask you to pray a prayer for me. Father, I pray for the one that you are speaking to, that you are drawing to yourself right now, that's realizing, wait, there's hope, but I've gotta be ready. I need to know Jesus, and I understand that he's waiting for me. Lord, I pray that right now you'll turn them, you draw them to yourself. And right now, I know you wanna accept Jesus as your savior. You wanna give your life to him. You wanna have eternal life. Jesus will forgive all your sins. He will. He'll take away the guilt that you're carrying. Jesus says, I will forgive all kinds of sin. The only sin he can't forgive is the sin of saying no to him and you die that way. All right? 
No matter how bad you are, look, he's not saving you because you're good or bad. He saves you because he loves you. Behold, what alien kind of love out of this world of love God has for you. But you need to accept that. The Bible calls it the gift of eternal life. God's offering the gift, but you need to take it. The Bible says, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. What does it mean to call upon the name of the Lord? It means to pray. And maybe you don't know how to pray. You wouldn't know how to. I want to pray a prayer with you. I want you to pray this prayer with me. You just repeat this prayer. I'll pray it. You repeat it after me. And it's going to be a prayer of repentance. God is waiting for you to come to repentance. Pray this prayer with me. Father in heaven, thank you for loving me and for sending Jesus to die for all the wrong things that I've done. I'm sorry for my sins. But I believe that Jesus died for me, that he rose from the dead. Please, Give me a brand new life. Give me a new beginning. Change my life. God has heard that prayer. God has heard that prayer. And maybe you're feeling something right now. Maybe you don't feel anything. It doesn't matter. You're not saved by emotion. You're saved by truth. And that's the truth. Jesus said, whoever comes to me, I will never, ever cast away.
You are now listening to Unity in Christ, the English hour of our broadcast program. Here at Heart and Soul Gospel Ministries, we strive to aid in the spiritual maturity of our listeners. Since 2000, we have dedicated our lives to make disciples of all nations through internet broadcasting or through our CD delivery program. Now you can find all the programs of Heart and Soul on podcast. All you have to do is search for Heart and Soul Gospel Ministries to listen to or download this week or past week's programs. Please don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. Coming up next is Praying for the Next Generation. Hello, my name is Deborah Joy. I'm the host of this program, Praying for the Next Generation. Recently, I was on a prayer walk at my favorite spot with the Lord. It was a beautiful sunny morning with a nice gentle breeze, and the atmosphere was filled with the sweet sounds of singing birds. My heart was captivated by the beauty of His creation. Then suddenly, God interrupted my thoughts with an urgency to pray for church leaders who shepherd the next generation. His kind and gentle guidance led me to immediate repentance for neglecting to pray for them consistently. Also, this prayer caused me to take action and resulted in wonderful phone conversations with many spiritual leaders who are serving on the front lines for the next generation. I wanted to hear their hearts so I would know how to pray effectively for these chosen servants of God. What stood out to me the most was their genuine love and tender compassion for this generation. As I pray for these leaders, God reminded me of 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 12 and 13, which says, But we request of you, brethren, that you appreciate those who diligently labor among you, and have charge over you in the Lord, and give you instruction, and that you esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Live in peace with one another. My brothers and sisters, let's honor God's word and show them our appreciation by earnestly praying for them with Titus chapter 2, verses 7 and 8, which says, In all things, Show yourself to be an example of good deeds, with purity in doctrine, dignified, sound in speech, which is beyond reproach, so that the opponent will be put to shame, having nothing bad to say about us. Let's pray. Father, we pray for spiritual fathers and mothers who are called to shepherd the next generation. Jesus, bless them to be compassionate shepherds who tenderly care for and wisely guide, protect, and oversee this generation as they follow your example and always seek to imitate you as their true leader. Fill their hearts with your compelling love and your tender compassion to pursue this generation and lead them to the message of salvation. Bless them to live their lives empowered by your grace and your anointing, so they can faithfully teach this generation your living word, which will empower them by its instruction and correction. Give them the strength to take the right direction and lead them deeper into the path of godliness. Empower your servants with your Holy Spirit so they can be role models of true godliness and genuine relationship through their uncompromising faith and lives of holiness and humility. Lord, as they minister to the next generation, fill them with the knowledge of your will 
in all spiritual wisdom, divine insight, and understanding, so that they will walk in the ways of true righteousness and purity, bearing abundant fruit in every good work, and strengthen with your mighty power. Use them mightily as your voice of truth, hope, healing, and wisdom to train and equip your children. Help them to cultivate healthy and authentic relationships with the next generation, where broken hearts are healed, trust is restored, godly submission is established, hope is revived, and communication is open, honest, and loving. Expand their discernment so they will be able to acquire brilliant strategies and creative ideas to connect with this generation heart to heart, to build their identity and self-esteem in your truth, and to teach them how to develop strong, authentic, and godly interpersonal relationships with others in your wisdom. Father, don't allow your servants to be weary or discouraged in planting good seeds, but encourage them with your overflowing hope that the season of reaping the great harvest is coming. Jesus, bless them to run with patient endurance and steady and active persistence the appointed course of this race set before them continually staying focused on you who designed and perfected their faith. Deliver your servants from the evil one who comes to steal, kill, and destroy, and from all of his evil schemes to attack them. We declare no weapon formed against them will prosper. Lord, silence every voice that rises up to condemn them. Father, ignite the kingdom life within them, a fresh fire within them, the Holy Spirit within them. Revive them through the power of your word and with your heavenly joy and blissful gladness. Lord, we magnify your name for you will carry out divine purposes in them infinitely beyond our greatest prayers, hopes, or dreams for your miraculous power constantly energizes them. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen.
are now ending our Unity in Christ broadcast. Thank you for listening, and I look forward to being with you again next week.